teaching his people about this. We're getting into um, parts of their uh, sort of rhythms of life and daily existence where the Lord is giving them some specifics about what it looks like to be a people who belong to him in their daily outworkings, in their in their monthly and yearly patterns of life and existence, uh, both individually and as a people, what, what it looks like for them to be the people of God, to be uh, citizens of His kingdom. And um, so this morning, as we look at these, sometimes as we read through some of these verses, they can look a little bit hodgepodgey, like, um, like there's commands about this, and then commands about that, and sometimes we don't see much continuity there, um, and we're trying to figure out, okay, I know this is God's word, I know this is truth, I know that there's something very valuable here, I'm just not sure what it is. And so my, my hope is that as we work our way through Exodus, you begin to see that, that the Lord, who was Lord over his people uh, in their slavery in Egypt, Lord over the rescue of them out of Egypt and through the desert, and to their homeland is the same Lord who was, who was uh, uh, born to uh, the virgin and became our Savior and presides as Lord over us all today. So we serve the same Lord. This is the same, same Lord of all that we're talking about in Exodus as we speak of today. And so uh, I hope that you'll be able to, to begin to see that some of the things he was speaking to with his people while some of the specifics of this are going to not resonate with our context of living, um, that there are principles and truths within that that will resonate with us, that we will be able to see this Lord loves us. He loves us. He desires good for us. He wants us to come to know Him intimately as He knows us, that we come to know Him as Lord of all, our faithful uh, creator and um, and also uh, judge and savior and so so we're going to look at Exodus chapter 23 verse 10 to start out with and we'll take this in little little bites as we go I want to just ask the Lord to um, to lead us into truth as he's promised to do with his spirit so fathers we come to your word we ask indeed that our hearts and our minds would be open to your word Lord, that, that within us we would have a fertile place for the seed of your word to be sown, that it would cr- grow and, and produce uh, all godliness within us. And Lord, that uh, we better represent you here where you've placed us. Lord, we, we ask uh, that you would lead us into truth this morning together, that uh, that. Wherever we have had a small view of you, Lord, that you would, uh, that you would really uh, show us um, the faults in our thinking. And uh, Lord, help us to know you for who you really are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 23, verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and life fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. 
So Lord, uh, here to start off with in our passage this morning, he, he reminds uh, his people that, that there, is a, 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 um, there is a cycle of work and rest that he has put into, in, into place here that has its foundations at creation that God created for six days and on the seventh he rested. And we see that pattern um, throughout many of the things that the Lord will, will have his people uh, incorporate as a, a, in their lifestyle here. And one of them even is on a, on a uh, multi-yearly cycle here where six years they were to sow the land and gather its yield. So um, this is their... You know, this is a, a, a uh, largely a, a agrarian type culture here. So, so when he's speaking to them going out and sowing and then harvesting, this is their occupation. This is their labor. This is how they make their living. And so the context here might be a little, well, is different for many of us because that's not how we make our living. That's not how we, are, that's our daily existence doesn't depend on us going out and cultivating a crop. But it does depend on some kind of labor that we do. Whether you're retired or not, it doesn't matter. Uh, you have work that you do every day. That work that you do, uh, this speaks into here, but there's a cycle of work and rest. And here, specifically, God addresses the cycle of work and rest even as it relates to the land that there's a cycle of rest even for the land. And then he says, uh, so that the poor among, the, among them would eat and that there would be some for the wild animals to eat. So in that seventh year, they were to do nothing with the ground, just let it rest. And what, one of the things that would have happened was any seeds that fell out during the harvest or got left behind would sprout up and there would be some kind of a crop there of which the poor were to have full access to for their own sustenance and the wild animals were, were to be allowed to uh, gain something off that as well. So God actually puts into place here a, a rhythm of work and rest that, that benefits the vulnerable and even benefits the land and benefits the wild animals. God has placed us when we turn back into Exodus as stewards of this land that we live and not to be consumers of it, but stewards of it. First and foremost of one another that we look out for the interest of others, other human beings created in the likeness of God. That that is, out of all the things that we are to be stewarding well, it would be that we look out for others well. But that does not mean that we overlook any obligation to steward the rest of creation well, including the land and the animals and all the other components of creation. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on that. It is a truth there, but it's not the predominant emphasis of this passage. As we continue on here, um, keep in mind that uh, one of the first things mentioned there that it that the poor of them were to eat. There is a, God continues to remind his people um, that they are to look out for one another. They are to care for one another, and they especially to give uh, a, a type of focus on those who have the hardest time um, in the world that we live. 
for various reasons. Uh, maybe it's ailment. Maybe it's uh, just the, the family they were born into. Maybe it's uh, who knows what. Whatever the issue is that has caused them to be in a vulnerable place within their society that we're especially to give priority to looking out for them. Verse 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So God here then reiterates that cycle of work and rest as it relates to uh, the week. And six days of work and a day of rest. And mentions giving the livestock a day off. Uh, he also mentions the, the son of your servant and, um, and the alien. God is again just saying, look out for those who are laboring for you. Look out for those who... It, we sometimes will find ourselves in a, in a position where we have influence and responsibility towards other people. Uh, for instance, like an, employee, em, an employer and employee relationship. There is a type of responsibility. And, and a good employer, a, a biblical employer, is going to have an interest in the well-being of his or her employees. And, and that's what the Lord is getting at. For those who are working for you, for their families, that you're looking out for their well-being. That you're not viewing them as your means to accomplish your ends, but that you are giving consideration to these are people created in the image of God who have value not because they work for you, but because they are made by the Creator. Verse 13, pay attention to all that I have said to you. Uh, When God says pay attention, when God speaks, first of all, when Yahweh speaks, everyone should pay attention. But when he says pay attention, you should really pay attention, right? Um, Pay attention to all that I have said to you. Now we, uh, as parents, we've probably all even used that exact phrase, pay attention, right? What do we mean? When we say pay attention and then we have something said after that, we're saying listen with your, not just your ears, but with your mind and your heart engaged, Listen in a way where you take this in, consider it, and then do something good and right with it, right? We expect that what we're about to say is going to have a good and godly influence on the hearer. God is saying, take this to heart. Implement it, practice it, preserve it. Uh, Even as we see is part of, of God giving these instructions to his people, it is to preserve it and to pass it on, that there's a responsibility in that. That if we really take to heart what God is instructing us with, that we're also going to take, take heart to preserve it, to keep it, to hold on to it, to practice it, and to pass it on. He says to pay attention to all that I have said to you. And make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. So once again, remember back in the Ten Commandments, uh, at the top of the list was keeping him alone as Lord. That he alone gets our worship, he alone gets our faith, our trust, our devotion. 
And so he keeps reiterating this for his people because he knows that humanity and you and I are, 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 are just as guilty of this as the Israelites were, that we are a, a people with a short attention span. We are a people who forget quickly. Uh, the Lord is faithful always and forever. And we go, Lord, I love you like Peter. Lord, I will die for you. Oh, shiny. Like we, we, just, uh, we just get so easily distracted in the grand scope of things. And so God continually reminds his people, don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't even discuss those other gods. Don't even entertain the idea of other gods. Because what God knows is when we begin to plant those seeds within us, when we begin to give some legitimacy to, to the idea that there, there may be some, some God who could compete with him or some God we can manipulate as, as would have been sort of part of uh, the pagan religions, the idea that there's a God who, who presides over some part of life and if you can do just the right thing to please them, you can manipulate them in your favor. But Yahweh is not one who is manipulated. Yahweh is not one who we can sort of thread the needle to make him happy and then we get this, that we sort of hit the jackpot if we do it right. But what the people are going to be tempted to do is when, when they allow their heart to begin to desire things that are not of the Lord, what they're going to begin to do is seek for ways to then obtain those things. And one of the ways that they might see as being a possibility is to appease these other gods that maybe these other gods will actually come through for us if we can manipulate them in our favor. And what God says is don't even entertain the idea. Don't even toy with it. Don't let those words even come across your lip. Don't let that seed even reside within you. We, uh, um, that's, that, that type of seed, when it gets root within us, does a lot of destruction. When we think about, you know, the phrase, the grass is greener on the other side. Um, this is just a human struggle that we have this idea that we've, when we start to think, man, um, that looks better than what I have. Um, what they have looks better than what I have or whatever the case may be, and we begin to entertain this idea that we're missing out on something, kind of like Adam and Eve in the garden, that God's keeping something good from us. And when we let that seed begin to grow within us, rather than giving it over to the Lord and saying, Lord, let, let me be right where you want me to be. Let me steward exactly what you want me to steward for your glory. Let me do it with, with the full uh, pleasure that you have in this. Um, that I would be satisfied in you and serving you. That we then, instead, we, we begin to have this seed of selfishness grow within us where we begin to desire, desire the things that the Lord has not given us. And when that seed begins to grow, it leads down destructive paths. Um, at its worst, it begins to lead to things to, like murder and divorce and destruction of families and and uh, the, the crumbling of even societies. But even not at its worst, it divides us one from another. It divides us from fellowship with our Lord. And so he says to his people, make no mention of the names of these other gods and don't even let it be heard on your lips. 
We are to keep those desires, we are to keep those thoughts in check by the word of God, by the counsel of God, by the spirit of God when he, when he pricks you and gives you that reminder that uh, you're stepping out of where God is. You're, you're not walking in step with me at this point. That we respond to that with confession and repentance and keep those things far from our hearts and far from our lips. Verse 14, three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, is, is the feast that happens uh, right on the heels of Passover. So there's Passover and then Feast of Unleavened Bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. So he, he reminds them, so remember they had the, if we look back into Exodus 12, there was the Passover night where God saves his people in bringing that final plague to the Egyptians where he kills the firstborn. But the, 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 the Jews were saved by their faith in him, expressed by them uh, sacrificing a lamb and, and wiping the blood on their doorposts. And the, that judgment of God passed over their households. And so in the Passover, they were protected from God's judgment. The following day then, they gathered their stuff and they were out the door. God was rescuing them out of Egypt. And so this is a reminder of all of that. They didn't have time to leaven the bread um, because they were, they were uh, sort of fast food here. This, they, they had to eat on the go. And so um, he says, uh, so in remembrance of that, that they are to eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. We're going to double back around to that. You shall keep the Feast of Harvest, um, which is also known as the Feast of Weeks, uh, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the Feast of Ingathering, also known as the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year you sh- shall all your males appear before the Lord God. So there are some things I want to point out here, and we're not going to dig so much into the specific feasts themselves, but rather the, the, the things that, that um, find a... Uh, there's a purpose in them keeping these feasts. So, so God isn't just trying to set up some special calendar for them to keep um, just, you know, for, for the sake of tradition or something. Um, there are specific, there's a, there are purposes, many purposes, um, that I want to mention several of within the keeping of the feasts. And we can find um, clues to that within the text here and in really multiple places where the feasts are discussed. The first one is, when we look at here, he says, three times um, in the year you shall keep a feast to me. Keep a feast to me. Which points to one of the purposes of the feasts were to help the people remain devoted to Yahweh. 
So the feast had a purpose in keeping them oriented towards the one who saved them, the one who rescued them, the one who judges, the one who saves, the one who provides, the one who protects, Yahweh. So the first one is to remain devoted to him. The second one, it's, it's a remembrance of what he's done to save them. Um, these uh, within, now, each of the feasts have a, a, a different nuance in, in their purpose. But, so I'm kind of going over just sort of the large scope of the feasts and the things that the purposes that we find in them. And one of them is to remember Yahweh's salvation. To remember his works, all that he has done to rescue his people, to bring them out of slavery in Egypt, to establish them as a people belonging to him, and eventually to bring them to their own place to call home. The third one is to teach future generations. So the keeping of the feast were to be a yearly thing that future generations would continue in so that the keeping of the feast had elements within it that were intended to remind everyone participating who God is, what He's done, and what He's going to do. And so the keeping of the feast found a purpose in that teaching of future generations. There are things similarly that we do that we might call tradition um, in terms of the way we worship together that actually have a purpose not in just keeping tradition because we've always done it this way, but rather in instructing future generations about who God is and what He's done. Now, hopefully, God finds us faithful to translate that meaning with the tradition so that it doesn't become a meaningless tradition, which is part of what happens among God's people is some of these things ended up becoming meaningless traditions that they kept and lost the preservation of the purpose and meaning within it. And so we don't want to be like that. So as we worship together, as we, as we take part in the Lord's Supper together, or we give of our, our offerings, tithes and offerings together, or, or we pray together, or whatever it is that we do so uh, as a means of not only our worship in the moment, but also as a means of instructing future generations of who God is, His grace, His love, His compassion, His salvation. The fourth thing is, it's a a way to give thanks to Yahweh. To to be thankful-hearted towards Him. There were sacrifices involved and and, and offerings involved in these feasts, and, and it was a helpful way for the people to remember who it is that provides for them, who it is that saved them, who it is that has brought them out of slavery and who it is that has brought them out of suffering and established them as his his own people. The fifth thing is to devote the fruit of their labor to Yahweh. Um, One of the things we see in there, even in the, uh, the keeping of the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of Weeks, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field, so even though they were to go out and work hard, right? That's part of it. Six days you should work, and then on the seventh you rest. You're to go out and do hard work and do all that you can uh, to, with what God has given you to make the most of it, to be productive. Um, 
but also to recognize that just because you're working hard and just because you might develop certain skills and, and talents and abilities um, that, that make you uh, 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 really good at what you're doing, that in the end, the fruit, the fruitfulness comes not from your hand and your abilities, but from the Lord Almighty. And so there is a re- recognition in devoting the first fruits. It's why we, why we still um, give of what we refer to as tithes. It is a, is a giving of our first fruits, so to speak, in recognition that we trust Him. If, if we're trusting in our own hands, in our own intellect, in our own abilities, we're in trouble. Those are fading at best and very insufficient. Um, we are, so often as we get older, we are, we are even more and more reminded of really how quite frail human beings are. And, and how, how little it takes to snuff us out. It is God who preserves us. And so the feasts were, had a purpose in helping them stay oriented to that, to remember that important fact. And, the, and then sixth, to celebrate Yahweh's gift of freedom. God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into freedom where now he's establishing them as his people. And they were to celebrate all that God has done for them. Now these are things that you and I, when we break it down like that, we can see, okay, maybe we don't keep these feasts exactly, but there are things that we ought to incorporate into our life to help us um, live out these, these purposes that the feasts contained. Like remaining devoted to Him. Like remembering what God has done for us to save us. Like teaching future generations about about the cross, about what it represents, about Christ having, having come to give His life for us, to save us from the wrath of God that was coming against our sin, to give us the hope of eternal life. Like giving thanks to Him recognizing that He provides, He protects, that He is powerfully present with us. Devoting ourselves and the fruit of our labor to Him as a means of our expression of faith and worship and celebrating the great gifts that God has given us, not least of which is salvation. That we have salvation from sin and the wrath of God. And he says to the people there, there was a mention there that during these feasts they, that, the, uh, um, that they were not to appear before him empty-handed in ver- verse 18, or uh, verse 17, I'm sorry. Um, no, yeah, actually. Uh, where am I anyways? I'm getting, getting ahead of myself and behind myself all in one shot here. So he's, he says uh, in verse, verse uh, 15, none shall appear before me empty-handed. And then in verse 17, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. In Deuteronomy 16, chapter, or chapter 16, verse 17, uh, he said that 
Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. Now you can look back there, but in Deuteronomy 16 is in the same kind of context as Exodus 23 here, that as they were celebrating these feasts and coming before the Lord, that they were to give as they had ability to give. And so God doesn't, uh, God doesn't look at, at me and, and say, well, how, much, how, how come you didn't give as much as so-and-so, or vice versa, uh, but rather says, hey, what have I entrusted to you, and, and what are you offering out of that? Out of the fruitfulness that I have given to you, what are you giving as an offering? So they were not to come before him empty-handed, not to, not to ignore all that God had done for them. God doesn't need their stuff here. God doesn't need our stuff. It is an, giving an offering is an important way for us to be reminded that we rely on him. And giving of the first fruits of our offering, the very first of, of whatever fruitfulness God is giving to us, helps us be reminded that, that uh, first of all, he is first and foremost in our life. So the best goes to him. The first and the best go to him. But secondly, that, that we trust in him, not our hands, not our intellect, not our abilities. And, and so we give to him as an expression of that. Verse 18, you shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. Now, this seems kind of like what? Until we remember that the, the Passover feast precedes the feast of unleavened bread. The Passover feast, what were the instructions given to them? Well, they were, uh, look, let's look at there, Exodus chapter 12, actually. Exodus chapter 12, verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning shall be burned. Uh, So we have... Here is what happened on that Passover night, how they were to prepare. There was, there was not to be any leftovers. Um, and, and so God, God te- reminds them here in the keeping of the feast that they're to keep these remembrances in those feasts so that they can remember what their ancestors have gone through. At this point, it's not quite speaking to the ancestors yet, but, um, but to remember what those who have come before them experienced to bring a realness to God's salvation. That it's not a meaningless repetition of a meal. So they were not to have leavened bread or to have anything remain till morning. Verse 19, The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Again, that reference of the, the best and the first portion going to Him because He is the one who is worthy. He is the one who provides and then we have uh, this curious thing at the end. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. 
Um, I mean, who hasn't said that before, right? If I had a penny for every time I said that. But when we consider what is, what is, what is God getting at, first of all, there, there, there are possibly here some, some pagan, uh, pagan things going on in people groups that they're familiar with that this may have actually been a thing. And so he reminds them of that. But also contained within that is to consider, consider just the way God created this world with order. What is the, what is the purpose of, of, a, of, of a, uh, a doe, goat here? That, I got that right, right? I'm not a goat person. I got that right, right? All right, so goat people, any goat people out here? Nobody will admit to it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. All right, so a doe has, what is the purpose of, of her milk supply? It, it's to grow the kid, right? Healthy and strong. And so the very created order speaks to us that God has provided a way for, for this uh, female goat to give nutrition and sustenance and health to its offspring. And so just the whole idea of boiling, cooking the little goat in the milk of its mother is, is, is so against the way God created it to work. And somehow it appears that this probably had become some sort of a pagan custom in, as an act of a worship kind of a practice and God just makes clear here to his people, some of this stuff that you have seen other people do is not to be your model for the way you worship me. And, and the first clue is that you're boiling a young goat in its mother's milk, which is meant to sustain it and give it life. Now, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, necessarily a save the goats kind of person here. I'm just saying... What God is establishing here for His people is a pure worship of Him. He wants them to have a worship of Him where where their whole life really becomes pure and holy and devoted to Him. So whether it's in their interactions with one another, so in the cycle of work and rest that they were to look out for the well-being of others. Um, or whether it's uh, our, our occupation that we devote the first fruits of our labor to Him, uh, or whether it's in our in our worship and how we keep a a some type of a purposeful, intentional worship of Him as He instructed His people to do in the keeping of the feast to remember Him, to worship Him for all that He is, or whether it's even our down to our relationship with with the rest of creation, the land and the animals, that God intends for every aspect of our life to represent Him, to be a pure and holy uh, outworking of our faith in Him. And one of the things that happens in humanity and that would happen with God's people is when they began to take their eyes off of Him um, and, and maybe focus on uh, the things that they felt like they needed or desired, they would begin to find frustration and division and anger and resentment and lack. 
but that when they kept their eyes on him and pursued him first and foremost, that they were going to find that he was faithful to provide and protect them. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Who did Jesus say it would be that would be, be those who were satisfied? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What about those who hunger and thirst for pleasure? Those who hunger and thirst for security? Those who hunger and thirst for the love of others or the appreciation of others? Well, you know the answer to that, don't you? There's never enough. It's always lacking. If our first pursuit are those things, there will never be enough. There will never be satisfaction at the soul level. The satisfaction that Jesus is speaking to is not like a full belly after a meal where you're just going to need to eat again, but the satisfaction of the soul. He said he came to give life abundant, a life that fills us with purpose and meaning and joy that we are serving our King and our Creator. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Later on in in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, he has this discussion with them about about how they they can worry about what they're going to eat and what they're going to wear and and all these things and be consumed with that. And we can spend every every hour of our day consumed with how do we keep our body healthy? How do we, where are we going to find our next meal? Are we going to have enough money for tomorrow? Like we can be really consumed with all of that and worry about it and work twice as hard to make sure that we, we're not going to be lacking when that day comes. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, as he's addressing this, do we have that one? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So there's this paradox as believers that God has called us into in that that. When we, when we see a, perhaps some kind of a lack in our, in our existence, whether it's food for tomorrow or uh, just something else in our life, our, our instinct is to go after grabbing a hold of that thing, right? whether it's relational or, or whatever it is. But the paradox is that the things that we truly need, God will provide if our first priority is seeking Him not in the seeking of that thing. He is faithful to us. This is something he's teaching his people back in Exodus. It's something that he's teaching you and I day by day right now. That if we will make our first priority, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, after him, that he he is going to meet our needs. We see it modeled in Jesus' prayer teaching of on prayer in Matthew chapter 6 verse 7 as he's teaching his disciples to pray he says and when you pray do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words in other words um, the idea that if you put together the right combination of words or if you can kind of tire God's ear out um, that you can manipulate him into giving you what you want or perhaps even worse than that just, just doing it all for show um, that others would hear. 
But he says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So pray then like this. Um, might add that what Jesus is saying is pray honestly. All right? Put away all pretense. God's not impressed by your vocabulary. He doesn't care how many these or thous you use. He, he wants to know he wants you to know Him. He already knows you. He, he, he's, he's seen who you are. You're laid bare before Him. You, you have no surprises for Him. He wants you to approach Him as you are for who He is. Pray then like this. Our Father in Heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in Heaven. So the very first acknowledgement first thing that jesus instructs his disciples to do is is to seek first the kingdom of god hunger and thirst after him the next thing is give us this day our daily bread not the other way around god we really need bread and you're really swell but rather to praise him worship him celebrate him give thanks to him and then say god as awesome as you are can you please provide my bread today it's that kind of priority that when we bring it to our life keeping god before all things that we will find the satisfaction of our soul the abundant life that God has promised, Jesus promised for us. So my question is for you today, who are you seeking first? Or what are you seeking first? Are you hungering and thirsting after the righteousness of God? Are you hungering and thirsting after Him, to know Him more, to please Him, to glorify Him in your life? Or are you hungering and thirsting after things that you just can't get filled up on? You, you can't get enough uh, of the type of love you want from your spouse. You, you can't get enough of the type of recognition that you want from the people that you admire. You can't get enough, uh, you can't get enough money in the bank to give you security. You can't get enough, whatever it is, you can't get enough of it and, and that that is the thing that you're hungering and thirsting after. I want to just remind you, if those are the things you're hungering and thirsting after, you're going to come up empty and frustrated every time. You might have moments that you think, oh, that felt good, or oh, that's what I was looking for. But I'm telling you, they will, they, they're disappearing. They're going away. They will not last. And they will not satisfy you the way the Lord Almighty who created you and gave himself for you will satisfy you. Your fears, your worries, your desires, if those are the things that you're going to seek after, you're going to be exhausted and empty. But if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you will find him. And he is enough, more than enough. And not only that, but all those things you've worried about, 
it is amazing how you will watch them one by one begin those worries begin to disappear as God provides for your needs. So have you surrendered your life to him to make him the first priority in your life? Do you call him Lord? Is your greatest desire to please him? If it's not, I would ask you today to give your life to him. He gave himself for you on the cross, not as a symbolic gesture, but to actually, literally take on the wrath of God against your sin. Your sin before God is disgusting and filthy and betraying and offensive to your holy creator. And he will not let you enter his kingdom in that condition. So God sent his son because he loved you and he loved me and he has compassion for us. He sent his son to take our place on the cross to satisfy his wrath against our sin so that we, through the righteousness of Christ, may enter into his kingdom. That is quite an offer. That is quite a gift and you will find none better. So I would ask you today to give your life to him and ask him to forgive you of your sins and to help you walk and step with him to create in you a greater hunger and thirst for righteousness and for him. This earth is fleeting, but eternity is forever. And he has, he has offered you eternal life with him. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you did, Lord, to give yourself for us on the cross. Lord, we ask that you would help us to learn more and more of your faithfulness, of your greatness, of your powerful presence. Lord, not only to save us, but now to, to continue to teach us and give us power and strength to walk in your ways, to be your ambassador here in this world that we live. May you be glorified through us. May you be glorified through every part of us, whether we gather here to worship together and hear the teaching of your word or whether we're out uh, harvesting um, carrots in our garden uh, Lord or, or whether we're helping a, a neighbor with a, a, a brake issue on their car or calling a friend that's gone through a hard time Lord whatever the stuff of life is that that we're going through whatever our work is whatever uh, our daily routines are Lord that every part of it would reflect you that it would all be for your glory and lord for those who would give themselves to you today lord i ask that you would that you would give them that blessing of the reminder of your presence and the freedom that comes when their guilt and shame is removed from them lord i ask that you would help them to to know you now as their lord and their savior who loves them and died for them. Teach them to walk in your ways. Lord, we give you this in our lives as well. In your name, amen.
Could you please stand? Live in a world where if um, you are going to be serious about keeping God first and following him first and foremost and seeking to honor him with your life, you're going to put yourself at odds with the flow of the world around you. And uh, Jesus said, um, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And while there is a context of living where we fret over worries and concerns each and every day, one of the things that if we are really serious about following him that we are going to encounter is the reality that our pursuit of him is going to cause us uh, um, inconvenience, hardship, and suffering in this life. That that is going to happen at some level, at many levels perhaps for us. And so um, it is important for us to remember that as a people belonging to him, called Christians because we want to be like him and we are saved by him, that, that we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything we need. Uh, as, first Peter has said, as Peter says, he's given us everything we need for life in him, to be glorifying to him for the rest of our days. So seek him first, church. Seek him first in his righteousness and know that he's got your life firmly in hand and he is bigger than all the stuff that we might face along the way. Lord, bless and keep you.